Sometimes, if you could see what's going on, it would be rather humorous. Maybe you do see it, and maybe it is humorous. But I'm thankful for technology in our day. I, I, I have a, I don't know if it's a good habit or a bad habit, but it's a habit of when I, for the off-toward prayer, I don't ask somebody until close to the off-toward prayer, because I kind of want to watch them worshiping, watch them, see where the flow's going. And the problem is sometimes when you want to ask somebody to pray, you have to look past some people. And I have a little signal. Jeff knows this signal. You know, this means pray, and, and so I'll do that. And so today I thought I would do it and ask Arthur to pray. Only problem was I had to go past Todd and, and Steph and Robert and to get to him. And everybody was saying, no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> so I text Arthur, and I said, Arthur, pray. <laughs> and he texts back, okay. So that was good. Uh, so anyway, sometimes I just need to ask before the service, I know. And sometimes I do, but a lot of times I don't. So it can be funny. I hope you found that funny. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to look specifically at verses 29 and 30. And we're going to look, uh, we're going to read verse 28 with it because, and I'll explain why that is in a moment, because it's very important that these three verses be taken together when you get into 29 and 30. You need to review, if you will, a little bit at least on verse uh, 28. Uh, I'm always amazed, and I don't know how many of you are on social media and various things, but from time to time, uh, things come up and, and they quote uh, different theologians and pastors and Many of you know my great love for Charles Spurgeon, and uh, so we had uh, this past week one of our members, and I, I was going to ask her if I could say her name, but I didn't get to see her before the service, and I don't see Lynn right now, so I won't mention her, um, <laughs> but she posted this uh, on her Facebook page, and I, it, it shows Spurgeon sitting in an easy chair. Now, I've studied Spurgeon for about 40 years, and I doubt seriously that Spurgeon sat in an easy chair very often, okay? He was always on the move preaching sometimes 15 and 20 times a week. So he was a very busy man. But this is what this meme said as a quote from him. I, I did not have time to tr really find it to be sure it's an authentic quote, but it sounds like him, so we'll play like it is, okay? Even if it's maybe a little off. It says this, Charles Spurgeon, If there's any verse that you would like left out of the Bible, that is the verse that ought to stick to you like a blister, until you really attend to its teaching. There's any verse in the Bible that you really wish had been left out, that you just didn't have to deal with, then, then that's the verse Spurgeon would say is one that you really ought to attend with. You ought to look at it. You ought to study it. You ought to delve into it. You ought to seek to glean all its truth because that's the one that is going to make a difference and change in your life. And I tend to agree with that statement pretty clearly. There are many people who love Romans 8.28. They will quote it invariably. For God works all things together for good. And some people stop there, and it shouldn't be stopped there. For all those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. That is a tremendous truth. And a lot of people, I've had people tell me through the years, I wish the Apostle Paul had left those next two verses out. Because they're a little difficult. They can have a little bit of difficulty to them. But I want you to understand that as wonderful as Romans 8, 28 is, and believe me, it is wonderful. 
Verses 29 and 30 are even more wonderful because 29 and 30 really tell us the basis on which verse 28 is true. If you take away 29 and 30, verse 28 is not a reality because in, that, in that, those two verses, Paul is showing us how God accomplishes the purpose that he talks about in 28 and reminds us that it is God himself who accomplishes it. It's God himself who accomplishes it. These verses have been known to be the anchor, if you will, of what many people will call eternal security or perseverance of the saints or eternal life. That these verses are the anchor verses that give us hope. Now, there are a lot of other verses that also teach that, but these seem to be the verses that many people usually come back to to say, here is my hope, here is my security, that and the remainder of this chapter. In 1966... I remember reading years ago about a Hindu monk, a Hindu holy man in, in New Delhi, India. He, he was a, a holy man and a mystic, and his name was Rahu. And Rahu announced one day to all of his followers that he had been given the gift of being able to walk on water. And he encouraged all of his people, all of his followers to gather around him at a particular place on a particular day at a particular swimming pool and he was going to demonstrate this gift that he had been given. And the day came for Raul to walk on the water and, and throngs came that, that loved him and followed him in his Hindu mysticism and they gathered around the pool to watch Raul walk on water and, and as the crowd got there with great anticipation and he prayerfully in his own way prepared himself for the miracle that was about to follow, Raul took one step forward into the water and immediately sunk to the bottom. He came up out of the water, he shook himself off, he was obviously distressed, he was obviously perturbed and even angry, and he looked at the crowd and he surveyed the crowd and he said, one of you is not a believer. I'm so glad our salvation is not based on anything like that. That our salvation and our security is based on what God has done. And God's power to hold. And God's power to endure with us. Our salvation is in Him. In verses 8, 28, if you recall, I'm sure you recall, back in, chapter, uh, back in October, I think it was October the 12th to be exact. On October the 12th, I introduced this section from 28 through 39, the whole rest of this chapter. And I talked about it in, in clear ways. I said, verse 28 carries with it five unshakable convictions. And it was just things like, Paul says, we know. And we know that God is working. And we know that God is working for good. And we know that God loves His people who love Him. And we know that God has called His people according to His purpose. Those are five unshakable convictions that the Apostle Paul has. In verse, verses 29 and 30, I talked about and we'll look at today, he shows us nine un undeniable affirmations. Five undeniable affirmations founded upon the Word of God. And then later in verses 31 through 39, we'll look at five unanswerable questions as Paul anticipates what people are saying, what people are asking him, and he answers those questions in the Holy Writ of the book of Romans. But here are these verses, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Those five undeniable affirmations are five great doctrinal truths that Paul emphasizes here, but that are taught throughout the whole of Scripture. You find Jonah, after him being rescued from the, from, from the, the fish in the ocean, after trying to flee from God, and God pursuing him, and even using a stinking fish to do it, and the inside of a fish to get his attention, and spinning upon ground. And Jonah's affirmation is, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. You find Job, after all that he's gone through, declaring that, yes, I don't understand why I've suffered through all this, but I know this, that though he slay me, no matter what happens, yet will I serve him, yet will I worship him, yet will I rejoice in him, because he is a good God. You can look at all the minor prophets. Time and time again, the minor prophets will make statements about, we know that no matter what is going on and no matter what is happening, our God is a God of salvation and will redeem and will save his people. In, in these verses, 29 and 30, we have what many have dubbed in, in Latin terms, if I give you a little Latin lesson this morning, the ordo salutis, the ordo salutis, which, which is used theologically just to talk about the order, ordo, ordo, of salvation, salutis, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul takes salvation and stretches it into eternity past with two of them and then brings it into the present with one of them and then looks at eternity future, if you will, with the last two. He stretches those two out. Now, there are a lot of people who look at this and say, I don't like those verses because of that, that second term there. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I don't like that word. I don't like that terminology. I don't like to think about that. I'm always amazed that people that will come and visit, they will have their visit while they'll usually say to me, uh, haven't, uh, I, I've heard something, and I, I want to ask you a question. I say, okay, well, what do you want to ask me? He said, I know what's coming. Well, I've been told that you believe in predestination. And I said, yeah, I do. And every Christian does. And they look at me like, well, I don't, and I'm a Christian. Okay, okay, well, I, I, let's, let's stop a moment. Let's talk about this. We may differ on how it's interpreted. We may differ on what it is. But folks, predestination is in the Bible. We just read the Word. It's taught in Scripture. You have to have some kind of understanding of it, okay? I, I remember in, in about 21 years ago, I think it was, it was, that would have made it about 1998, somewhere in there, 99, I remember speaking to a group of pastors in Orlando, Florida. We were gathering, they'd asked me to speak, and they'd asked me to speak on the Ordo Salutis. They actually gave me that term. It's a group of Baptist pastors in Orlando. And so I started that, that meeting by saying, let me ask you this, how many of you here present believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God? Twenty hands went up. Joyfully. Quickly. Excitedly. I said, okay, put the hands down. I said, how many of you believe in predestination? Five hands went up. 25% of the pastors gathered there raised their hand. 
And I said, that's problematic. And they said, well, what do you mean it's problematic? You think we have to believe just like you do? I said, no, I don't think you have to believe just like I do. But to say I don't believe in predestination when it's clearly taught in the book that you just told me you believe is the infallible, which means without error, uh, in, uh, in, uh, excuse me, infallible means it cannot err, the inerrant, which means it contains no error, and the authoritative word of God, which means everything that it teaches is an authority for us. When you say that you believe that and yet you believe something that it clearly teaches, there's something wrong. There's a disconnect there that we have to deal with. I think a lot of people get all caught up in thinking the whole idea of predestination is somehow something that strips away their meaning, strips away their importance, strips away their, uh, if you will, uh, the word that's usually used is free will. And, and I do believe that we are free moral agents. We make real decisions. We make real choices under the power of God. But it's really like we sang about just a few minutes ago. I stole Jeff's song sheet there. because, And I, I prayed about that. It says, you know, you have won me with your kindness chased me down when I was lost. The Apostle John in his first epistle says, we love God, but we love God because he first loved us and called us with his calling. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is not denying the fact that we follow Christ. Paul is not denying the fact that at some point in your life and in my life, that we said we want to trust Christ, we want to follow Christ, we want to obey Christ. But what Paul is saying is, if you are a believer in Christ, you need to come to a point where you can rejoice in the reality and glory in the fact that it wasn't up to you, it was God's work in your life that brought you to that point, and be thankful to Him. Usually a lot of times what we find ourselves doing, we say, well, well if that's true, what about Him or what about her? Why are they not following? I can't answer that. But all I know is, thank God, he called me. Thank God, he foreknew me. It doesn't just mean foresaw me in eternity past. And thank God that he predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son, called me, justified me, and has glorified me in his own mind already uh, out in uh, eternity future because I know this without a doubt. I want you to hear this. I know this without a doubt. This is just Bill Haynes. If it were left up to me, I would still be lost in my sin. Now, I'll tell you that about me first because I want you to understand something. That's also true of you. It's true of every one of us. Had God not set in motion His purpose and carried out His purpose, not just hoping that His purpose would be true. I, I heard a preacher one time say, you know, God, uh, God did everything He could do and now it's up to you. Well, Half of that is true. God did do everything he could do, and he's done it. And I'm thankful to God for what he has done and what he has carried out and what he has accomplished. So I say, don't be afraid of the reality that in eternity past, God foreknew you. Doesn't mean he looked down and said, oh, look at that, that Bill Haynes. He is a prize. He's going to choose to follow me. Foreknew doesn't mean foresaw. It's a word that's used in Genesis, the same word in, in the Hebrew that's used in Genesis that, that says, and God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and Adam knew Eve, and she conceived a son and bore him. Do you see this in the garden? Adam and Eve are created. God says this is the woman, or this is 
this is the one I've created you. And he said, whoa, man, that's her, got her, woman, okay. And he saw that, and, and he said, okay, this is, this is great. Hi, I'm Adam. Oh, hello, I'm Eve. And boom, she became pregnant. They knew each other. That's not what he's talking about. Adam and Eve entered into an intimate, loving relationship. Adam knew Eve in an intimacy, in a relationship with love, and she conceived and bore a son that grew out of that relationship. And, and some of the Puritans translate this verse, those whom he foreloved, those whom he set his heart upon, those he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now that vacates any idea that, well, God just predestines who he will and those are saved and they, they, might be, they might live a holy life, they might not live a holy life. No, Paul makes it clear that those whom he foreknew and those whom he has predestined are predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. He is at work in their life shaping them and forming them and bringing them into the image of Christ. And those whom he has foreknown, foreknew, and those whom he has predestined, those he has called. He has issued a call upon their life. He has said, follow me. Whether it's like Peter and James and John down by the, the mending their nets, and he looked down and said, come, follow me. And he got up, and they got up, and they followed him. They left their nets, and they followed him. Or whether it's like Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb, had no life whatsoever, a good picture, by the way, of the lost man, of you and me before Christ. And Jesus looked into that grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead, he who was dead, came alive and came out. It's a great picture of our salvation, folks. Bill Haynes, come forth. And I came forth and followed you. I came forth and trusted you. I came forth. I was a new believer because of the work of God. I had one lady one time tell me, but, but Lazarus, had to make a choice whether to come out of the grave or not. Now think about that. Lazarus is dead. And now God has spoken to him. Christ has spoken to him and said, Lazarus, come forth, come alive. No, thank you. I like the grave clothes. They fit me well. No, no thank you. I think I'll just stay here among the dead. Just roll the stone back in place and I'll be back in my late last state very soon. I mean, it's really kind of ludicrous. And to recognize that if you're in Christ is to recognize that God has done a work in you that is a mystery. I don't deny that. And it is hard to explain and hard to understand. But folks, don't ever say, I wish God had left that out of his Bible. God put it there for a reason that we might learn to rejoice and praise and worship Him even more than we ever would if we thought, well, you know, God's pretty lucky because I chose to follow Him. God's pretty lucky. I, I gave my life to Christ. You did give your life to Christ after He did a work of regeneration like He did in Lazarus in your life. What a glorious truth. What a glorious point of praise and worship and adoration. Don't ever say, oh, I just wish God, that's hard. I wish, yeah. I love what Paul said to the Ephesian Christians in, Ephesians, in Acts chapter 20. He's getting ready to leave them. He spent three years with them. And he says, for three years, I have labored among you with tears and with sweat. And for three years, I have ministered to you. And, and I love how he said it. 
And not once did I hold back from you anything that was worthwhile. I taught you, he said, the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Every bit of it. I taught you about salvation. I taught you about foreknowledge. I taught you about predestination. I taught you about regeneration. I taught you about justification. I taught you about glorification. I did not pull back, no, not once, from declaring you the whole counsel of God. Why? Because the whole counsel of God is worthy of your acceptance. It's worthy of your trust. It's worthy of you believing. And even when you don't fully understand it, you believe it quoted several songs that I love, that one by Andrew Peterson and, and one by uh, Jess Ray that says, Lord, help me, under, help me believe that which was not meant to be understood. Now, we can't understand the whole totality. I mean, I wake up every morning, folks. I, I'm, uh, that may be a little bit of exaggeration. I probably missed one a week or two ago. But I wake up all, almost every morning in wonderment that I'm a Christian. Because it's just, it's just not a natural thing to be. It is a supernatural thing to be. So Paul said, those whom he foreknew, or as the Puritans say, set his heart upon, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be shaped, carved, molded into the likeness of his dear son, becoming more and more like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. Glorified in the past tense. Not those he is glorifying or those he will one day glorify, but those he glorified. In the mind of God, if you are in Christ, if you're involved in this ordo salutis, uh, if you're involved in that, th then your ultimate final salvation is just as secure then as it is now or as it, it was the day you believed is established not by your ability. We sing that and he will hold me fast. I could never keep my I could never keep my way. I could never keep myself in the faith. Only he can do it. We sing that. And I, I hope you sing it and with understanding because truth of the matter is you learn more from the songs we sing than from the sermons I preach. Whether it's an old hymn or a new song that has real solid theological truth, we learn it. He will hold me fast. He will guard my heart. He will hold me in his hands. Uh, Jesus said, you know, if you are in me, you're in my hand, and I'm in the Father's hand, and the Spirit is circumventing all of that to keep us all bound together. I'm in you, you're in me, and we're in the Father. What a glorious and beautiful truth. Five undeniable affirmations. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he, he justified, and he glorified. Emphatically true, emphatically helpful. Harry, Harry A. Ironside, who was a Bible teacher of several generations ago, uh, he, he told a story one time about an elderly man 
who was asked to share his testimony in a, in a meeting, a church meeting. And, and this particular man began his testimony and, and, and he told how God had sought him out and found him, how God had loved him, how God had called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. A great witness to the grace and power and glory of God. But after the meeting, Ironside says, a rather legalistic brother took him aside and criticized his testimony. Now, we can all be guilty of that, picking out little things we don't like. But this one was quite significant. The, the, the legalistic brother said, I appreciated all you had to say about what God did for you. But you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. The dear senior brother responded, Oh yes, I, I apologize for that. I am so sorry for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. His part was running after me until he caught me. Kind of a Jonah experience. We've all run away. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that we looked at month, uh, year, a couple of years ago, Romans chapter, no man seeks after God. No one is righteous. No one wants to be in God's presence in their natural state. Why? Because we are full of sin and we are, we are infested by sin and that sin is repulsive to God and because we love our sin, then, then God is repulsive to, to the lost man. But when God, through Jesus Christ, says, Lazarus, come forth, all that changes. His Holy Spirit touches our life and changes us. And those who sought to pursue away from him, to run away from him, pursued him. Did I choose to follow Christ? You bet your life I did. Did I choose to follow Christ because he chose to call me? You bet your life I did. Do I understand the actual total working out of all that? You bet your life I don't. But I just want to believe that which is not meant to be understood. I want to believe what God has taught in his word, whether it fits with my experience or not whether it fits with what I want to say or not. And listen, I understand a new believer saying, well, I chose Christ. I understand that. But after a believer has been immersed in the Word, after a believer has studied the work of salvation from God's Word, I don't understand a believer saying that. All I understand a believer is saying is this, oh, thank God He saved me. Thank God He did for me what I could not do for myself. We sing about that all the time. Do you hear that? Do you confess that? Do you believe that? Perhaps one of the greatest old hymns, and it's none of our contemporary hymnals. It was written in 1878. I looked. I even looked back in the Broadman hymnal. Denny gave me a Broadman. We were talking about it one day. It's the first hymnal I ever remember when I was a kid at East Boga Baptist Church, and then he had one, he gave me a Broadman hymnal. So I've now I've got the Broadman, the Old Baptist, the New Baptist, and 15 others, I guess, in there. But, but 
I even went back, I went to all of them. And I went back to the old Broadman. I said, surely it's in the old Broadman. It wasn't even the old Broadman. So disappointing. The title of the hymn is, I Sought the Lord and Afterward Knew. I love this. Just the first verse. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. You hear that? I sought the Lord. I pursued the Lord. I wanted the Lord. But afterward, when I saw His word, I knew He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It it was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found and found by Thee. It, it was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found by thee. So that is a, that, is, that ought not be an alarming truth. That ought to be a securing truth. That ought to be a comforting truth. That ought to be a truth that says, you know, I don't understand all that God is doing. I don't understand all that God has done. I don't understand all that God is going to do in my life. There's a whole lot yet to be lived if I live over 30 more minutes. But I do understand this. I do know this. I do believe this, that my my God has saved me by His grace. My God has called me and justified me. Now, Some say, why didn't Paul put sanctification in there? Listen, if you're justified and you're glorified, sanctification is understood, okay? I know that my God has done a work in my life that I could never have done. Am I a free moral agent? Do I make decisions? All the time. And sometimes those decisions aren't good decisions, and God has to chastise me for it. But the truth is, what Paul wants us to see here and what Paul wants us to be comforted in here and what Paul wants us to acknowledge here is one phrase. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God. We sing that, don't we? I'm just giving you our repertoire of music today. What a mighty God we serve. A mighty God who loved us and knew us and called us and justified us and set us apart for His glory and for our sanctifying into the image of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, Bill, why do you say that verse 28 would be somewhat shallow without verses 29 and 30 for this reason? Pastor Todd, in his sermon on Romans 8, 28, a month or so, maybe two months or so ago, when we were preaching that, he talked about what is the good. And what is the good? The good is the ultimate glory that we will have in the presence of Christ, right? So if he says God is working out all things for good to those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, that purpose is to shape us, conform us into the image of Jesus so that we might have the ultimate good And that is His presence for all of eternity, glorified, as it were, past tense, as it were, in His glorious presence. I don't know about you, but my response to that is, wow. Wow. 
Now, the passage that Pastor Michael read from Acts chapter 13? Yeah, 13. You know, it talked about what happened on the Sabbath with the Jews and the Gentiles, all of them coming together. I, I love what he says. If I can find it. And the Gentiles heard this and began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were as pointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The Jews were incited, etc., etc., but they shook off their dust from the feet against them and went on to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who came to know Christ came to know Christ by His work from His eternity past glory, predestined to be a part of His glory in the future. And they went on to Iconium, filled with joy, for knowing what God had done, filled with the Holy Spirit, in order that they might take the word to the ends of the earth. That's what he said. In order they might speak this. And do you realize in our day, being filled with the Holy Spirit is usually portrayed as being some kind of, you know, I guess what, I guess, author felt it earlier when he said those words give you a tingle that's good those songs should make your hair stand up and rejoice in the goodness of God but being filled with the spirit is not just a feeling of euphoria scripture always says and they were filled with the spirit and they boldly proclaimed the word of God all through Acts study it Every time it says, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they boldly proclaimed, shared, declared the Word of God. And if you're in this ordo salutis, and if you're in Christ, you are, then your resulting thing ought to be worship, praise, and bold proclamation of the glory and the glories of God. Luther said, the only thing I brought to my salvation was the sin that I needed to be saved from. That's all I can bring. I have no righteousness. I have no morality that sets me apart as a good man. I just bring my sin. And as this old, again, the hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring. No righteousness, no morality, no goodness, no religion. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Pray with me.